0: Hi there, it's me, Holly, and welcome to the only second location that you should ever go to. This week, we are continuing with our exploration of the Florida furniture store murders and the subsequent conviction of Tommy Ziegler. Now, I don't know if you can tell by the sound of my voice. First off, no, I'm not trying to do the, an impersonation of Kathleen Turner. I just have an incredible amount of congestion, and it's the type of congestion that's sticking with me. I'm not sneezing. I'm not blowing my nose. This congestion has come to live with me, learned to love me, and decided to stay. So, um, you know, like what type of disgusting things do you guys have going on in your bodies? Oh. Hmm. 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 You don't say. That does sound gross. But let's get back to the case at hand. So here's a little recap. But I highly recommend listening to last week's episode that expands upon all the people. You know, all the victims, witnesses, murderers involved in the case because this crime is confusing and because, you know, I want more listeners. Yes, people, I want your approval. Maybe it's a need. Well, anyway, I don't know for sure. I just want you guys to listen and think because true crime is not empty-minded entertainment. It provokes thought. So let's not be ashamed of our interest in criminal things. And let's spread the word about the podcast, okay? Okay, to the recap. On Christmas Eve, 1975, four people are found murdered in the Ziegler furniture store. Eunice, who is the wife of the store owner, and her parents, Perry and Virginia Edwards, and Charlie Mays, a regular customer of the store, are all dead. Tommy Ziegler, the owner of the store, had called for help around 9.18 that evening because he had been attacked and shot in the back area of the store. Tommy was rushed to the hospital, and he survives. Tommy will end up being convicted of the four murders and sentenced to death. But decades pass, and Tommy is never executed because after his trial, information comes out that casts doubt on his guilt. It's over 45 years later, and Tommy Ziegler still sits on death row, fighting for DNA testing that he believes will show his innocence. Okay, back to the crime scene. At the furniture store, and Winter Garden. Police Chief Don Fickey, that's one of Tommy Ziegler's best friends, is still outside of the store. An unarmed police officer, Jimmy Yawn, arrives, but, you know, he also doesn't have a gun. Fickey doesn't have a gun. None of the police officers on the scene seem to have guns. Officer Cindy Blackhawk. I took a second with that name because I think it's Blackhawk arrived, but she too was unarmed. You know, if I have to say her name again, I'm just going to call her Officer Cindy, okay? And it is slightly because the word cock is in her name, and I'm not trying to make fun of her, but when I say it, it sounds like I am, and that is not intentional. So anyway, no officers going inside that store unarmed. There's no guns there. So the police wait in front of the store for, they send Officer Yon out to return with some weapons. So while the police were waiting for guns. Judge Van Deventer, a friend of Tommy's, and he was also the man who was hosting the party for law enforcement that night, well, he arrived at the store with a minister, and Chief Vicky sends them to the Ziegler house to notify Eunice that Tommy had been shot. Of course, no one answers at the Ziegler home when they arrive, because Eunice is lying dead inside the furniture store. Van Dieter and the minister then go next door to see Tommy's mother, Beulah, and she rushes to the hospital with the men. She was allowed to see Tommy as he was prepped for surgery. She asked him where Eunice was. Tommy asked, isn't she with you? Tommy apparently thought Eunice had made it to the church services that night. I mean, that's sad. I mean, that's a little heartbreaking to me, but okay. It takes yawn six minutes to return with guns. That's pretty quick. While he was gone, Ficky had deputized two guys that had arrived at the scene, just as Thompson returned from the hospital with the news that Charlie Mays was wounded in the store. Chief Vicky was shaking outside the store. He was shaking so badly that he couldn't even load his own shotgun. And I want to tell you, like, load your own shotgun? Not even like a gun with tiny bullets. I'm assuming this is like a large shotgun. What sounds about right. I mean, this guy seems like he gets worked up easily, in my opinion. But you know, his inability to load the gun sounds about right for a grown man that can't go to a party on his own. I don't want to be this guy's underwear when he's under pressure. Okay, um, you know, let me clarify I don't ever want to be this guy's underwear, but he just seems like an egg that's ready to crack at any moment. And even the picture of him like outside the crime scene when they're investigating it, he's got his hand up to his head. This guy just is he can't take it. <laughs> it just it shows. This police chief is frightened of absolutely everything. And it doesn't seem like he hides it at all. I get it the pressure is on. But you are in charge. Make it look like you should be in charge. This guy's like Barney Fife, without Barney's sense of loyalty. Vicky was shaking so badly that Officer Yawn had to load the shotgun for him. He had to load the gun for the police chief. Remember that we have two police chiefs at the crime scene. There's Chief Vicky, who is Tommy's friend and Police Chief of Winter Garden, and Chief Thompson of the neighboring town Oakland. Chief Thompson wants a sense that Vicky couldn't handle shit, so Thompson entered the store first along with Officer Yawn, a deputized citizen followed them. A deputized citizen followed them. And behind the deputized citizen was the Winter Garden Police Chief Don Fickey with another deputized citizen. I just want to point out, so he has a police chief from another department going first, along with one of his officers. A deputized citizen! And then he goes in behind a citizen with another citizen. I don't think the chief of police should go be backing up behind deputized citizens, but I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. So anyway, the police chief went in with the civilians. He should be a little bit embarrassed. Or a lot embarrassed. Citizens went in before the chief of police. Of these first five guys that go into the crime scene, only two have flashlights. And they are going to find out that the power to the store had been turned off and the store was completely dark inside. And as they make their way through the store, from the front showroom to the back storeroom, Officer Young came upon the first body. He said later that he had seen so much blood, he'd never seen blood like that before, and it was so dark, he initially thought it was Charlie May's body, until he gets closer and he saw that it was a white man. He checked for a pulse, and there was none. Yon looked for an ID in the man's pockets, but his pockets were empty. The dead man was Perry Edwards, Eunice's father. A pistol was lying near the dead man's head. Later, his wallet would be found inside his car in the parking lot. The wallet contained no money. Inside the store... At the customer service counter, Thompson could see that the phone was covered in blood and hanging off the hook. Presumably, this is where Tommy made the phone call to the Van Deventer party. Thomas went behind the counter, and to the one side he could see an office door where the door jamb was broken. He looked in. No one was inside. On the same side, there was a second door. This door led to an employee kitchen and break area. On the other side of the door, Chief Thompson saw a young white woman laying face up in a pool of blood surrounding her head. With her one hand in her coat pocket. She was dead. It was Eunice Ziegler. But Thompson didn't know Eunice, so he had no idea who this lady was lying dead on the kitchenette floor. Jan pointed his flashlight across the back room and near the linoleum racks he spotted the body of Charlie Mays. The heavy linoleum crank lay against May's right arm and his head had been beaten severely. Jan passed by May's body at least three times and noted that two revolvers lay near Charlie May's head and two pistols lay near his feet. Even though the five men were in the store for several minutes, Chief Fickey never looked at any of the bodies other than Charlie Mays. When the Fickeys had been driving around looking for Tommy earlier in the night when they were looking to meet up with Tommy and Eunice to go to the party together, Chief Fickey's wife had noted that the Edwards Green Sedan was parked in the front parking lot where it still sat, but the chief of police didn't make the connection that the unidentified older couple could be Eunice's parents. You know, even though his wife had just mentioned that Eunice's parents' car was in the store lot. Sadly, with a police chief like this, I would say it would be easy to get away with a crime in this town, but it's too sad to say that because with police like this, it's easy to be sent to death row for a crime that you didn't commit. Ugh, just depressing. Keep in mind that the entire time the officers were in the store, the lights were out and couldn't be turned on. Later, they were to find that the power had been turned off at the main source outside the store. Both Officer Yawn and Police Chief Thompson noted that some of the light switches in the store switched into the on position, as if someone had tried to turn on the lights earlier. Tommy would claim that he flicked on at least two light switches that night when he entered the rear of the store, but that the lights did not come on. Why, if Tommy was guilty, would he have done this? He would have known that the power to the building had been turned off from the outside. Okay, so when he exited the store, Chief Vicki saw Sergeant with the sheriff's office, Vicky said that he needed help. The sergeant made a radio call to the sheriff's. Vicky was asked if he just wanted technical assistance, or did he want the sheriff's department to take the case. Vicky responded, "I want you to take it. I want you to take the whole thing." Yeah, that's what Chief Vicky said. Probably the only time in his life. Bet she heard it a good bit, though. Anyway, with that statement, Ficky cleared a quadruple murder off his books before it ever even hit the books. And in my opinion, he turned his back on his friend Tommy when Tommy was desperately in need of his help. Barney Fife would have never done this to Andy or even to Otis. You've got to hate a chief of police that doesn't want to solve crime in his own town. I mean, literally, it is his job. It's not just writing traffic tickets and beating up black guys, asshole. Sometimes you have to solve a murder. This guy is just laughable. An actual crime happens in his town on his watch and he just screams for help. Is he a chief of police or a victim? It's hard to tell. Later, it'd be claimed that Tommy thought his friend Don Fickey would investigate the case and clear Tommy quickly. But me... Well, I'm not sure that Tommy would be willing to rely on a man who so clearly couldn't be relied upon. So, the Orange County Sheriff's Office took over the crime scene immediately. Everyone at the scene was ordered out and ordered not to enter the store again. Better late than never, right? Oh wait, maybe I meant too little too late. I'm really not sure because so far there have been five people in the store searching in complete darkness. But don't you worry, Because the sheriff's office has got this under control. They appoint a new detective. And by a new detective, I mean, you know, inexperienced to head up the investigation. The sheriff's department has never solved a quadruple homicide before. So I say, yeah, it's a good idea to get, you know, a new hire on this task. I'm just saying, maybe you don't place him in charge of the entire investigation. But don't worry, he is fresh off of a one-week course on blood spatter. Let the idiocy begin, because this guy's interpretation of the crime scene is ludicrous. When the investigators realized that Eunice and the Edwardses couldn't be located, a theory arose among the crowd of policemen that they were being held hostage within the Ziegler home. It seemed to make sense at the time. I mean, Chief Thickey thought it was logical. How the hell? He couldn't make the connection to the three unidentified bodies in the store, which were an older white man and woman and a younger white woman, to Eunice and her parents, even though his wife had told him he saw Eunice's parents' car outside the store just an hour earlier. I don't understand how he couldn't make that connection, but I think there's a lot of connections along life that Don Ficky misses. But the hostage situation seemed more logical than that, and to Ficky, you know, he wouldn't be able to handle a hostage situation either. Because, speaking of hostage situations... Now I'm having a hard time saying hostage situations because of my cold. And I know it sounds terrible. So I'm going to try to stop saying it now. There was a hostage standoff in Winter Garden a little while before the murders. Guess who handled it? Nana, no, no, you're wrong. It wasn't Don Fickey. It was Tommy! Not only was Tommy a good guy, he was perhaps a more effective police officer than Chief Figgy. There had been a hostage standoff at one of the Ziegler apartment buildings, where a man was holding his wife inside, threatening to kill her. Ficky was at the standoff, and he watched, yeah, watched, as Tommy talked the man into coming out of the building. So if there is a hostage situation, they might have to take Tommy off the operating table to handle it. So anyway, thinking there's a hostage situation over at the Ziegler Homestead, a carload of cops, along with a photographer, drive over to Tommy's house. After breaking a painted glass in the French doors to make entry, the police find two purses open on a settee, and nothing else to cause alarm. Nothing at all. They even search the attic. In the garage is Curtis Dunaway's car, with a .38 caliber revolver on the floor behind the driver's seat. The gun's six chambers are loaded. Jimmy bags the gun as evidence. And right there, right there tells me they already suspect Tommy and they don't even know that it's his wife and in-laws that are dead in the store because he went into the man's house and found a gun up it, It's in a car and it's loaded. But why would that have anything to do with the murders that took place a five minute drive away? I don't like the sounds of this or the looks of it. Maybe meanwhile, back at the store, more police show up and Vicky gives two men from the sheriff's department a tour of the store. So we're up to seven people that have walked through the store. Eight if you count the fact that Ficky did it twice. The count of people inside the crime scene is important. It goes to crime scene preservation, which I know you guys know all about. So let's keep this tally running. You know, this is an important number to remember because where things are located in this crime scene is going to be a major and a major fact in Tommy's conviction later. This time in the store, Ficky sees Eunice's body, but he still doesn't recognize her. And, I mean, if you are if you have a strong stomach, you can go and look at the picture of Eunice. She has been shot in the head. It's available on the internet. She's laying on her back. She's in a pristine condition. It, I mean, it's not a close-up of her face. She just looks like she's laying on the floor. You know, pull blood around her head. She's not beaten. Her face is very clear. Eunice should be able to be easily identified by Chief Vicky. This is the man that knows her. This is the wife of his best friend. He should be able to identify her. But this guy is just... Everything's shaken loose, you know, on him. Some of the investigators at the scene go around back, and they see a truck parked by the back loading dock. This would later be determined to be Edward Williams' truck. One officer hops the padlock gate to the fence surrounding the building. He sees a beat-up old van on the other side of the fence, and this would later be determined to be Charlie May's van. So Mays is going to pick up a 200-pound TV, and he parks on the other side of a fenced-in parking lot of the furniture store. Does that make sense? He doesn't even park in the store's parking lot. He is parked in the parking lot for the hotel behind the furniture store. And there is a six-foot-tall chain-link fence between his van and the furniture store. Why park so far away if you're going to pick up a massive TV? It makes literally no sense. I mean, here's the thing. If I was picking up a 200-pound TV, I would have pulled into the front parking lot and drove around to the back loading dock. You know, what Charlie did earlier in the day when he picked up the linoleum. He didn't park in the hotel parking lot then, so why do it now? I'll tell you why. Because there was a large trailer parked on the furniture store side of the fence that makes it so you can't see Charlie's van from the road where he parked. Charlie parked in the spot where no one could see him parked there why well most likely because he was there to rob the store doesn't that make more sense there has to be a reason why he parked in such a weird spot and a planned robbery is the reason he wouldn't be hiding his van if he was legally picking up a tv he'd be hiding his van if he's illegally picking up a tv you know robbing and trying to grab all the money out of the store one of the officers notes that a prong is broken on the gate so it does open but really, I'm more of a loading dock kind of gal when I pick up a 200-pound TV. Maybe Charlie parked on the other side of the fence because he didn't want anyone to notice his van there that night? Just a guess. When I pick up a 200-pound TV, I park close. Like, honest to gosh, I remember being a kid in, like, 1984, and our huge console TV had to go to the repair shop, and it was a huge multi-man endeavor. My dad's cousin Frank had to come help us. It wasn't easy. This was a time when you repaired TVs and you didn't just pitch them away back then you know life was a pain in the ass then but it was you know a lot less disposable okay so more sheriff officers arrived at the crime scene and three superior officers decided to enter the building sure why not the more the merrier we're up to 10 men patrolling the crime scene keep in mind There are no lights on in the store, so they have to navigate by flashlight. They exited through a new pathway this time, trying to avoid the trails of blood. So this time, they're trying to avoid the trails of blood. That implies they weren't trying to avoid the trails of blood that hard before. But anyway, that is when they find the body of Virginia Edwards. They now have four dead bodies. A sheriff's detective went to the electrical box outside the store and saw that the master switch had was turned off so the electric box is photographed and then turned on the lights are finally on in the store chief thompson went along with another policeman to curtis Dunaway's home remember he's the employee at the furniture store and he had swapped cars with tommy that evening chief thompson brings curtis Dunaway to the scene and curtis identifies the bodies So Dunaway is the 11th person to walk through the crime scene. There have been four tours so far of the crime scene, three in darkness, before any of the evidence has been collected or pictures taken. Can we all agree that this was a massive blunder that goes to show that these investigators didn't really know what they were doing and were just completely in over their heads? And I'll say this, I'm going to give Chief Ficky a compliment here, because at least Chief Ficky realized that he was out of his depth and threw in the towel and screamed for help. These other idiots are dangerous because they are too simple to realize their own incompetence. It really is a tragedy of life that so few idiots realize that they are idiots. I really believe that identifying the bodies could have waited until they were removed from the store. Outside of the store, they could have been identified. Was anything gained by identifying the bodies at the scene? No, I really don't think so. But it further corrupted the evidence at the scene unnecessarily what was the point of bringing in more people to the crime scene? I mean, we're not trying to get into the Guinness Book for some most idiots in an active crime scene, but does show that the investigators are not properly handling the case from the get-go and just don't know what they're doing. To go further in this area, let's explore it a little bit. Officers smoke cigarettes throughout the crime scene. And even though almost everyone smoked back then, it was against policy for officers to smoke at a crime scene. Makes sense, right? Don't contaminate the scene. But here, the officers smoke throughout the store in complete disregard for crime scene protocol. Okay, so this sheriff's department has never solved a quadruple homicide before. You think, do everything perfectly. So I want to tell you that when I'm examining this, I'm looking at this. These people are doing the best they can, the best job that should ever be done. And this is their best job. And it's shockingly bad. It's depressingly bad because you realize these people handle cases all the time and are walking around screwing them up. But anyway, officers smoke throughout the store in complete disregard for crime scene protocol. And just look at it this way. Maybe the smoking and flinging of matches everywhere didn't affect the evidence. But it speaks to the laziness and the carelessness and the disregard for protocol of the officers at the scene. They couldn't be bothered to walk outside to smoke. Laziness like that is just so profound that I think it implies a general laziness in everything these people do. You might ask, were people really flinging matches everywhere at a crime scene? And the answer is yes. Yes, they were. In the office, a burnt match was found on top of a twenty two cartridge. No one in the Ziegler family smoked. Why would that be in the office, just thrown on the floor? Most likely because an officer tossed it there. Okay, so let's just go over the evidence that was found at the scene. Early Christmas morning, the police find a key ring in Charlie May's pockets. There were three keys on the ring. Fry immediately requested that the keys be released to Charlie's wife and the keys were never photographed or checked for fingerprints. They were never tried in the store's doors. It was just, oh, the wife wants these? Give them back to her so she can have them. No one investigated that because right there from the beginning there, even though Tommy, as he's going into surgery, says Charlie may shot me. I think the store is being robbed. That angle of it being a robbery and Charlie's involvement is never investigated from the beginning. Those could have been keys to the store. I don't think that they were. I think that they had gained access to the store through another means. But the fact that they don't investigate that. They just hand the keys back over. But they find a gun in the back seat of a car that's in Tommy's garage at his house. That's begged for evidence. At his house? But keys in the pocket of a person that another victim saying the guy shot him and was robbing the store? We don't check a look at that? It shows myopic. We have a focus already. And as much as people, these officers don't want to say that they zeroed in on Tommy from the get-go, I think they zeroed in on Tommy from the get-go. Okay, so there were five guns at the scene. Lots of bloody footprints. A shoulder holster that belonged to Tommy was found near Charlie May's body. A fingertip from a surgical glove was on the ground. And there was a stool with blood smears on the legs. Two teeth. Two bloody thirty eight cartridges that looked like misfires were recovered from a drawer and a desk. And $405 in cash, along with store receipts from the furniture store, were found stuffed in Charlie May's pockets. I want to say that again. $405 and the store's receipts were found inside Charlie May's pockets. The man that Tommy said was robbing the store. Do we consider that evidence of a robbery? I would say Yeah. Yes, it could be planted on him to make it look like a robbery. And it could also have been put there by him, by Charlie Mays, in the course of a robbery. This is where it's going to get a little this is bizarre, okay? Charlie Mays' pants were unzipped and pulled down to his thighs. His underwear are up, but his pants... And not down to his thighs, but it's down lower than normal. His pants are unzipped. They're past his hips. I'll put it that way. And the bottom of Charlie's pant legs were saturated with blood. And blood was thick and caked on his shoes. Of the guns, a Colt 357 was found near Perry Edwards, and there were six empty cartridges in that gun. Nearly Charlie Mays' head, investigators found two cheap .38s by RG Industries. These guns were identical to each other, but one had a bent trigger guard. The gun with the bent trigger guard had two spent cartridges and three live rounds, but the gun was not usable. The undamaged gun had five spent cartridges. There was another gun at Charlie Mays' feet, a burger Derringer that held two shots, there was an expended round and a live round in the Derringer. There was another gun near May's feet at 22 Smith & Wesson that was jammed. Of the five guns at the scene, four were found near Charlie May's body, and one gun was by Perry Edwards' body. Anyway, remember how Ficky had passed the case on to the Sheriff's Department? Well, no one at the Sheriff's Department had ever investigated a quadruple murder. This is a big deal for the department. So, of course, they assigned the case to a 29-year-old who'd only been a part of the Crimes Against Persons unit for two years. I'm guessing before he was part of the Crimes Against Persons unit, he was did speeding violations and traffic things. He's new to crimes against people. He's new to crimes, you know, where there's a victim. Anyway, this man's name is Donald Fry, But don't you worry, because he just took a one-week course in blood spatter analysis. So he's got this. And through his inept investigation, Donald Fry would ultimately orchestrate one of the greatest injustices in the history of American crime, the conviction of Tommy Ziegler. Detective Fry spent the entire first night at the crime scene, and by early morning, he had concluded that Tommy had killed his wife and in-laws, and 15 minutes later, Tommy had killed Shirley Mays. Now, he spent the entire night there, but I really get the feeling that he came to his conclusion about Tommy being the murderer fairly early during that evening based on their actions and based on his original statements which he realized how stupid they sounded later so he walked them back but yeah i do remember one time there was something where he said that within 15 minutes of being there he knew what had happened if it takes 15 minutes to solve a quadruple martyr then why do we have so many unsolved crimes it takes more than 15 minutes donald fry if you want to get the right person But, like I said, I think it's more likely that Detective Fry had made up his mind that Tommy was guilty within minutes of seeing the crime scene. And I really wonder if other investigators may have also rushed to judgment. For example, when an officer found a gun in Curtis Dunaway's car when it was parked in Tommy's garage at his house, they bagged that gun as evidence, even though they did not know it was Eunice and her parents' at the store at that time. But still, this gun at Tommy's home was tagged as evidence. That's weird. Unless Tommy is already a suspect. I mean, this gun's not tied to the crime at all. It's in a car parked in a garage at Tommy's home. It is a gun, and the people at the crime scene have been shot. I can't see anywhere where police officers went to Charlie May's house searching for guns on the night of the murders. We haven't bagged a gun yet at the crime scene, and we're bagging guns at Tommy's house. That's weird, in my opinion. The crime scene photographer that went with the officers to Tommy's house, that was back when they thought it might be was a hostage situation going on. Well, the photographer, he stated that sometime when he got back, it was between 11 on Christmas Eve and daybreak. He stood in the parking lot, so it's before daybreak, so it's nighttime. He stood in the parking lot next to Chief Thompson, as the chief called the hospital to order them to retain Tommy's clothes in separate bags as evidence. The photographer turns to Thompson and asks him if he thought that Tommy was the murderer, and Chief Thompson replied, Hell yes! is guilty as hell so to me it looks like two investigators maybe three thought that tommy was guilty from very early in the investigation and sadly once the investigation focused on tommy they never looked anywhere else and i'm going to tell you something that's going to be the truth in almost any investigation you ever read about once they focus on one person there's almost nothing that can redirect that focus of an investigation so, early on Christmas morning, two witnesses come forward telling the police stories that supported Fry's theory that Tommy was the killer. The first witness is Edward Williams. He tells the police the following tale. Now, remember that Edward Williams was the handyman that did occasional work for the Zigglers at their apartment buildings, and that Tommy had asked Williams to help him with some deliveries on that Christmas Eve. According to Williams, Tommy told Williams to meet him at Tommy's house at 730. When Williams arrived, He checked the time, it was 7.28, but Tommy was not at home. Eventually, Tommy does arrive, driving Dunaway's car, along with two other black men. Tommy asks Williams to wait a little bit longer, and Tommy leaves with those men, and Tommy then later returns alone. Williams said that while he was waiting for Tommy to return, a car pulled into the driveway containing a white man and woman. Based on Williams' estimates of time, it would be 8 to 8.10. The couple backed out of the driveway after stopping and left. That could be the Fickies looking for Tommy and Eunice. 20 minutes later, Tommy returns. And that would be at, if it's 20 minutes later, it'd be between 8.20 and 8.30. Tommy hops in William's truck and they drive to the furniture store. Before he gets in William's truck, uh, Williams notes that Tommy gets out of the Dunaway car, parks it in the garage, and wipes it off with a cloth. And then he gets into truck with Williams and they drive to the furniture store. Now, the couple in the car, they would probably be the Fickies looking for Tommy and Eunice. Now, I think it's weird that they see this guy waiting in a parked truck in Tommy's driveway, and Don Ficky doesn't go over to the occupant of the truck and ask him if he knew anything about where Tommy's whereabouts. But yeah, it would make sense to go and ask the other guy that is waiting for Tommy, if he has seen him or expects him back soon. According to Williams, he had just seen Tommy 10 minutes ago, and Tommy told him he would be back in 10 minutes. So if Vicky would have talked to Williams, he could have learned that Williams thought that Tommy would be back any moment, and Ficky would stop driving around looking for Tommy and just wait for him at the house. But I don't think Vicky ignored Williams. I don't know necessarily that Williams was in the truck waiting for Tommy at that time. Because while Williams reports seeing a white couple in a car pull into Tommy's driveway and back out, Williams doesn't mention the fact that the man got out of the car and went to the house's front door which Don Fickey says that he did on that stop when he saw Williams waiting in the in the truck. There is a discrepancy between the times that the Fickies say they stopped at Tommy's house and the time that Edward Williams claims to have seen a couple stopped at Tommy's house. I tend to believe the Fickies for multiple reasons. First, it's the husband and wife are calling a shared events, so you know, two heads better than one, even if one of them is Don Fickeys. Um Williams admits that he only looked at the clock at 7:28 that entire evening. He claimed he arrived at Tommy's house looked at his watch, and the rest of the times are just estimates. And I also think it's very likely that Edward Williams is both a liar and a murderer. So, you know, based on those two things, I trust him less. But also, the Fickies, while I don't think they have motive to lie, I think there could be confusion on their times and then when they stopped precisely just because the fact is i believe they stopped at his house three times and when people say about i mean i don't know they're not gonna be precise i think their first time they stopped there they could be accurate because they left their house and they knew the time they left their house so i would say the first time when they give a time that would be accurate but the next two i think they could be off a little bit more than the first Okay, so I just put Don Ficky down as like an idiot for, you know, but I have a reason. I, You know, I get the feeling that Ficky doesn't do a lot of thinking for himself. I mean, he just keeps driving around looking for Tommy and Eunice, thinking, oh, maybe they're bumping to each other on the road. I mean, he drives to the party. He drives back to Tommy's house, checks the party, back to Tommy's house. the passing the furniture store along the way. It's interesting to note that in his accounting of his three trips to Tommy's house on Christmas Eve, on that first stop at approximately 8.05, neither... Donald Fickey, or his wife, Rita, saw William's truck in Tommy's driveway. Now, this does not match up with William's story, that he arrived at Tommy's at 8.28 and waited for Tommy and his truck for over an hour. He arrives there at 7.28, I'm sorry, at 7.28, and he waits there in Tommy's driveway in his truck for over an hour. So, 7.28 to 8.28, at a minimum, Edward Williams is supposed to be in there sitting in his trucks. If Williams is telling the truth, the Fickey should have seen his truck in Tommy's driveway at 8.05, and they didn't. Unlike Williams, the Fickies have no motivation to lie. So while I feel like the Fickies, when they say they don't see him there, I I believe they don't see him there. Also, when I say like their times might be off, I don't think that's due to lying. I think that's just because they're driving around looking for somebody. They're not knowing that they're going to be trying to pinpoint the time of a murder and things based on this when they're looking for their friend. You know, it's just estimates like anybody would have. Okay. So back to William's account of the evening, because this is where William's story gets wild. Williams claims that when he and Tommy get to the store, Williams parked his truck in front of the store. It's about 840 when Tommy goes inside and he goes inside um, the front and Williams then drives around to the back of the store and stops at the locked gate. After about five minutes, Tommy comes out and unlocks the gate and Williams pulls into the back lot. Tommy closes and locks the gate behind him, which Tommy always does as a habit thing when the back of the store is going to be open, the gate to the back is locked. Williams follows Tommy's instructions to back up and park near the rear door. Then Williams gets out of his vehicle and pees alongside his vehicle while Tommy goes ahead and enters the back of the store. Now you might ask yourself, why pee outside? What? The furniture store doesn't have restrooms no the store definitely has restrooms and williams knows that he helped build the store and helped put in the restrooms but i don't think this is just one of those hey i'm a guy i like to pee outdoors kind of thing i think he doesn't want to enter the store at the same time as tommy because he knows tommy is going in there to be attacked think of it this way if edward williams knows that tommy is walking into an ambush and they're going to be shooting at tommy I, as edward williams wouldn't want to be standing behind tommy when shots are being fired so I find a reason to hang back a moment, and i might be peeing by my truck. When he's done peeing, Williams goes into the store, only he's entering a hallway area, only for Tommy to emerge from the darkness of a hallway, holding a gun wrapped in a cloth. And Tommy is shooting at Williams, but the gun doesn't fire properly, and Williams is not shot. Williams yells, for God's sake, Mr. Tommy, don't kill me! Don't kill me, Mr. Tommy! I can't act that one out. I don't have the... The begging sound that I'm sure it had. You know, if those words were ever actually said, which I don't think they were. But anyway, at this point, according to Williams, Tommy got down on his knees and begged Williams to go into the store with him. Williams hesitated, saying no, because Tommy had just tried to kill him. Yeah, Williams. you stand your ground. You don't go in there where that man just tried to shoot you. Ugh. Tommy says that he didn't realize that it was Williams that he was shooting at, which makes no sense at all. Who the hell else would it be? Then in an effort to convince Williams to enter the store, Tommy gives Williams the gun, a .38. Still, Williams refuses to go inside with Tommy, and Williams claims that he put the gun into his right front pants pocket, and Williams said that he hid behind a trailer in the parking lot. Now, this would be the trailer... It's masking Troy um, May's parked van. The problem is that according to both Tommy's lawyer, who saw that how the trailer was positioned in the lot and Curtis Dunaway, the trailer was basically almost up against the chain link fence. There is no way someone could fit behind it. They said at most, it was six inches space between the chain link fence and the trailer. So that's a lie. And William said he hid behind that. He didn't hide behind that. It's not physically possible. Now I know it's a little small lie, But when you start accusing someone of murder, every lie matters. You lie about one thing and it calls into question everything else you say because you are a liar and you shouldn't be trusted. But the police believe every single thing that Williams says. They just drink the flavor aid and ask for a refill. Now, Williams still has the gun he claims Tommy used to try to shoot him. And he turns it over to the police On that time after Christmas Eve, when he's telling them this whole story, he hands over the gun. And later, it is determined through ballistic tests that this gun was the gun that was used to shoot Perry and Virginia Edwards. So this guy shows up with the murder weapon and an outlandish story, and the lead investigator just buys this sack of bullshit. Williams claimed that Tommy tried to shoot him with that gun, but that it misfired. But when the gun was examined by the police it was in working order. So I'm not sure that the gun misfired so much as it, you know, had six empty cartridges in it and was not loaded. Williams claimed that Tommy tried to shoot him with a gun that wasn't loaded. Williams' story is outrageous and really doesn't make any sense, but the police believe Williams and never really question him or his motivations. This man's truck is parked at the crime scene and he has in his possession the murder weapon, but to police treat him like a victim, not a suspect. He has the murder weapon, for goodness sakes. He should be a suspect. Everyone should be. I think even Tommy could be a suspect initially. I just don't like the fact that Tommy was the only suspect and that he was guilty as hell within hours of the murder. If not, in the view of some people, I think maybe minutes. Williams said that Tommy put his arm around him, around Williams, urging him to go into the store, almost hugging Williams. This is almost a tender moment, isn't it? That's when Williams said that he noticed blood on Tommy's face and shirt. They had just been in a truck together, but Williams did not notice his blood before this moment in the darkness. Keep in mind that according to the state's theory of the case, Tommy should be soaked in Perry Edwards' blood at this point because Perry fought his killer, and the shirt taken off at Tommy as the hospital has a lot of dried blood on it. Some of it is Tommy's from his gunshot wound, but the state argues that the blood on the in the underarm of the shirt is Perry's blood that got on Tommy's shirt when Tommy, they're alleging Tommy held Perry in a headlock and beat him with a metal crank, but Williams never notices blood on Tommy before this. Even when Tommy was in the garage in his house with the lights on, or when Tommy walked in front of Williams' truck's headlights as Tommy entered the truck, or during the ride to the store together, Williams never noticed blood on Tommy's face or shirt. Williams did notice a blood stain on Tommy's pants that after testing, turned out to be furniture stain, not blood. As Tommy is begging Williams to go into the store with him, on his knees, well, you know, according to Williams, Tommy said, Edward, if you don't go, you're going to frame me. And with that statement right there, Detective Fry has his theory of the case, that Tommy Ziegler set up this whole scene to look like a robbery gone wrong, and that Tommy had framed Charlie Mays and was trying to frame Edward Williams as well for murder. Why he needed to frame multiple people, no one knows and no one understands. According to Williams, he convinces Tommy to unlock the gate, but then Tommy hops in Williams' truck, and Williams jumps the fence into an area just outside the Winter Garden Inn, a hotel. This is a six-foot-tall fence. This I'm going to say he's an older man, jumps. Then he runs across four lanes of traffic, across the street to KFC and tries to call the police. I mean, he could have just gone to the Winter Garden Inn to use the phone. He was already in their darn parking lot. But no, Williams then claims he flees all around the furniture store building where he thinks Tommy's trying to kill him. You know, he's over there in the parking lot. Could he, Tommy could grab a gun and be shooting at him from anywhere. But instead, he runs all the way around that fence and flees to the KFC across the street. But why not just go into the hotel and be out of harm's way? I just don't get the whole go to the KFC to call the police. It's across the street. It's the length of a building away. And you're in the parking lot of another facility that's open to the public and has phones. Go there. Okay. So at this point, according to the state, Charlie Mays is already dead. And he's been dead a little while. According to the state, Charlie Mays is dead when Edward Williams and Tommy drive to the store. Charlie Mays is already lying dead in there. So if Tommy is trying to set this up to look like a burglar killed his family, he already has a dead burglar in the store. Does he really need a second dead burglar? Does Tommy really need Edward Williams dead in the store as well? I don't really think so. But more importantly... If this had all really gone as Williams described, why would Tommy let Williams flee the scene? Williams knows too much. He could go to the police and tell them everything he knows, which William does. Why would Tommy risk having a living witness? Tommy could have shot Williams out there in the parking lot and claimed that he shot Williams as he fled the scene after shooting up the store. Are we really supposed to believe that Tommy is willing to murder four people including family members but when Williams flees Tommy just lets him go? He doesn't shoot him with any other guns at the scene? That Tommy just lets him jump the fence and leaves a witness that could reveal Tommy's involvement in the murders? It doesn't make sense at all. Tommy could shoot him and there's something wrong with that gun. If Tommy was stupid enough to pick up an unloaded gun that wasn't loaded to shoot him, there's other guns back in that store. There's ammo back in that store. He could run in there. He's much younger than Williams. Run in there, grab another gun, and just shoot him in the parking lot. And that's not done. It makes no sense. If Tommy is the person that did this, why would he allow witnesses to live? You just don't do that. Not when you're supposed to be a criminal mastermind, like the state acts like this man is. I think what really happened that night was a plan. And that Williams delivered Tommy to an ambush. An ambush that Williams knew was going to happen. And Williams fled the crime scene on foot after Tommy was attacked and shot. Because Williams couldn't get his truck to start. Because the carburetor had problems when the truck was warm. So there it is. Williams isn't panicking and fleeing because, oh, people were being killed and people were being shot and this was going to happen. It was a planned attack on Tommy. And Williams was part of the plan. But what wasn't part of the plan? is edward williams truck not starting and right there is when edward williams starts to lose his shit he is stuck at a crime scene with four or five dead bodies he doesn't know if tommy's gonna live and he can't get his damn truck to start he needs to hatch a plan real quick but he needs time to think okay so check this picture out williams said he jumped over the fence into the parking lot of the winter garden inn he could have used the phone there. It's a hotel. Why? When someone just tried to murder you, you don't go to the nearest place and call the police? I mean, he had to cross four lanes of traffic to the KFC. Meanwhile, he was standing outside a hotel. The KFC aspect of the night is outrageous. First, if Williams plans to call police for help, just go to the hotel. You're already standing outside of it. That's why the KFC part just drives me nuts. But also, the fact he doesn't go to the end gives him more movement in his timeline. And that's something that's going to be important to buying Williams' stories. He never gives definite times for things. It's very hard to peg him down on time, so it's very hard to find contradictions in his story. Also, there's a complete lack of precision. Second, Williams' claims he goes to KFC immediately after fleeing from Tommy outside the back of the store. And according to Williams, all of his estimated timeline, he arrived at the KFC at 845 Williams never looks at his watch, so his times are not exact, but estimates. This really works to his advantage, because he claims to not know the exact time of things, so he can't be pinned down and easily contradicted on his timeline. And in general, it just creates confusion. Okay, I'm sorry. I have to say this really quick, because I realize that this case is very confusing, and I think I maybe made it even more confusing by not opening up earlier with what the state's theory of the crime is. So I apologize. This is on me. This is confusion created by me. Holly. So here's what it was. The state's theory of the case is that first Tommy gets Eunice to go to the store after hours, probably on the pretense about this recliner, and he kills her in the store. And that Tommy and Eunice had driven to the store together. And then he has prearranged for Eunice's parents, Perry and Virginia, to show up uh, shortly after the time that he and Eunice shows up. So they arrive at the scene with Eunice already dead in the store. And at that time, the state says that Tommy killed Virginia and Perry. He would have some a time gap there between when Charlie Mays and another man show up at the store. And that is when the state says that they do run around, do some stuff, but eventually Tommy kills Charlie Mays in the store. And then he goes back home and meets... Edward Williams and brings Edward Williams to the store, attempts to lure him into the store, shooting at him, and then Edward Williams escapes and runs and jumps over a fence and does all this crap and runs to a KFC. I don't completely think I told you guys that at the point in the story where Edward Williams is saying that that Tommy's luring him into the store is that there are already four dead people in the store at that point. And one of them is Charlie Mays and the rest are the members of Tommy's family. So the question arises: Once you have Charlie May dead in the store, do you really need to be setting up other people to look like they're they murderers too? I don't think you need multiple murderers there. It could be one guy robbing the store, shoots those people. You don't need two for that. I, did, I really don't see the need. That's why I don't see the need of have multiple people involved in this. Have Edward Williams and Charlie May's to be framed. You don't need to frame everybody in town for these murders. Okay, so let me just go back to this to the timeline here with Williams. Now, he's just saying Tommy had tried to shoot him. He's saying a man had tried to kill him, a man he had known since he was a child. He flees that area, going and looking for help. Williams has himself arriving at the KFC around 8.45. But numerous witnesses claim that Williams did not arrive at the KFC until after 9 p.m. when the restaurant was closed. Now, he's still allowed into the restaurant. Uh, the witnesses agree. I'm just saying it was the time that the restaurant closed. And that's why people can be precise about it was 9. Because we know, because the doors were locked, because things that... Closed-out procedures had started. And in fact, one waitress whose shift ended at 9 o'clock said that Williams was not at the KFC before her shift ended. And remember that Officer Yawn and Chief Thompson were both inside the KFC until 8.50 that night? I think the time they were in there was between 8.30 and 8.50. Neither of them saw Williams in the restaurant that night. But Williams has himself showing up and asking for the phone number for the police at 845. So you know, if there were two police officers sitting there at a booth in the KFC, there wouldn't even be a need to call the police. People would have said there's two police officers right over there. So you know, there's no way that man was there at 845. And there's no way he was there at 850. He's there later. And that's a problem for the state that they never admit and they never address. If All this went down across the street at 8.40, 8.30, 8.40. Why is he not showing up at the KFC immediately? He's claiming someone just tried to murder him. What's he doing in the in-between? It's a question, and a question that I'm going to think I might have an answer for later. But it's something I came up with, so it could be a load of malarkey. Okay, so perhaps the most powerful evidence that Williams lied about the time he got to the KFC is the deposition of Ed Nolan. Ed was a 75, I'm sorry, Ed was 74 years old, and he had terminal cancer, and he went to the KFC every day. And on Christmas Eve, he was at the KFC from 7 until closing. Ed said that a worker had locked the KFC door at 8.45, and Ed Nolan said he unlocked the door to let several customers out at about 8.25. And at that time, as he's opening the door, because he ends at the store so much, it's like he's at the restaurant, I guess. I'm sorry. I called KFC a store. It's a restaurant. He's out there so much. He's like an employee. So when the people need out, he, he operates the door so the other, the workers can keep doing their business. So he unlocks the door to let several customers out at 925 and he encountered a black man in a brown sweater at the door who asked him for the phone number for the police. And this was definitely pre nine one one. I know that some areas had abbreviated emergency system numbers at this time, but much like myself, nine one one was a child of the eighties. So he gives him. He asks if it's local or not, and the guy says it's local. So he gives him the abbreviated number. It's shorter. Like you don't need the prefix to call if it's a local call. Now some people have tried to impart racist feelings about why he, he's like he's. I didn't see no any reason to be giving him all those numbers and people said there's something racist about that i just don't think that's racist i think if you could tell somebody a seven-digit number to remember or a four-digit number to remember both of them meant the same thing i'd give them the shorter number just because it's easier to remember and besides ed ends up not being able to make the call to the police he doesn't get through so it seems to me like it's apparently he didn't get the right number anyway so maybe he couldn't handle four numbers either but anyway, after talking to the man in the brown sweater, Ed said that he turned and he saw his brother and sister-in-law in the door. They told Ed that they had almost collided with a police car and that something was going on across the street at the furniture store. That police car that almost hit the Nolans was driven by Jimmy Yawn, Officer Jimmy Yawn, who was responding to their request for backup at the Ziegler store. This means that Edward Williams only arrived at the KFC as police were responding and arriving at the furniture store in response to Tommy's call for help that was placed at nine eighteen. He wasn't there at eight forty five. He was there after Tommy had become conscious again and called for help. JD Nolan, the brother that was driving with his wife, confirmed his brother Ed's account of the events. I'm going to repeat myself, but this is important. According to multiple witnesses, Williams arrived at the KFC at almost the exact same time as police were arriving across the street at nine twenty one. But Williams claimed he fled after Tommy supposedly tried to shoot him between 8.40 and 8.50 and immediately ran to the KFC across the street to call for help. But it took Williams at least half an hour to get to the KFC across the street. What had Williams been doing in that time between when he allegedly fled the furniture store in 9.40ish and 9.21 when he arrives at the KFC? Well, one of the things I think he was doing was panically trying to get that truck to start. That's what I think he was doing. I think that took some time. I don't think he fled immediately. I think someone shot Tommy. He's out there flooding that truck just trying to get it going. But anyway, there is a 40-minute time gap there. And that is something the state never explains. But we'll get there on our own, I think. The defense was able to find five witnesses at the KFC that saw Williams arrive at the restaurant after 9. And three of those witnesses, specifically saw Williams, arrive after the police arrived at the furniture store at 9.21. Sadly, Ed Nolan, the KFC regular, would die of cancer before the trial, and the defense was able to depose Ed Nolan before he passed away, and he outlined letting Williams into the KFC and then almost immediately encountering his brother, who had almost collided with a police car, responding to the Ziegler store emergency. In his deposition, Ed Nolan stated that while he was hanging out in the crowd, watching the scene unfold across uh, outside the furniture store i mean ed seems like he's a looky-loo to me and he saw the man that he had let into the kfc earlier that night the man he let in to call the police but the man was wearing different clothes ed nolan noted that it was harder to identify the man because he had changed clothes but ed said that he asked the guy if he was the guy that had called the police from the kfc and the man responded i ain't called no police Ed was sure that it was the same man from the KFC that he saw in the crowd. But then he mentioned, after people change clothes, you look different. Especially, uh, this is Ed's words. An N-word? According to Ed, they're harder to identify. Ugh, Ed. I thought you were such a lovable character. An elderly KFC loving man dying of cancer. But Ed, you just can't say shit like that. And Ed, you just can't think shit like that, okay? Okay. Ed was undeniably a product of the Times and the Deep South, but Ed's casual racism really hurt Tommy's defense. If Ed Nolan had lived to make it to trial, he could have been coached by the defense lawyers, you know, schooled, you know, taught to drop the racist epithets. but because he died, the defense had the option of admitting into evidence his deposition in its entirety to a jury that will have six black people on it. The defense chose not to admit the deposition, and I think it's a decision they chose wisely. I think it's the only choice he could make. While they still had Ed's brother and sister-in-law to testify about the time and how they saw Williams entering just before them, the defense lost the testimony of the only person that had seen Williams standing in the crowd outside the store in different clothes than what he'd been wearing on earlier that night at the KFC. It was important to note that several people at the KFC recalled that Williams was wearing an all-brown outfit, including a brown sweater, But the clothes that Williams will hand over to the police the next day, are a black cardigan, green pants, and black boots that look brand new, with a price tag still stuck on the bottom. A pair of dress boots. They have no scuffs or signs of wear, even though Williams claimed that he climbed a chain-link fence in those boots. First off, who wears dress boots to make deliveries of furniture crap? If Williams saw he was going there to do work, why not wear work shoes? No, I don't think he purchased these after the murder, because it was Christmas Day and no stores would have been opened, but he definitely had enough time to dispose of his bloody clothes and shoes and find other clothes and shoes to turn into the police. At the KFC, Williams runs into two sisters that he knows, and he said that he asked them for a ride to Orlando. The girls are not related to anyone else in the case, but their last name is Thomas. But there are going to be other people last name Thomas that pop up later, but as much as knows, no relation. In one of the sisters' depositions, she stated that Williams never asked to go to Orlando, and they asked to go to an Exxon station to pick up his Camaro. The girls noted that Williams seemed shaky, and once they were all in the car, he told them that a white man had pulled a gun on him and tried to shoot him, but the gun didn't go off and the white man... Begged him not to tell the police. Williams then said he took the gun off of the white man and he fled the scene, jumping over the fence and running to the KFC. One of the sisters specifically answered when asked whether Williams ever mentioned Tommy Ziegler or his boss trying to shoot him, and you know whether she he ever mentioned Tommy by name, and she said he had not, only calling him a white man. And to me, this is weird. Why not say Tommy's name? edward william knows the man's name and most people in that town knew who tommy was or at least knew the name ziegler from the store it's a little odd that he doesn't specify who tried to kill him but i think williams is still trying to formulate his cover story at this point after the sisters dropped williams off at his camaro at the garage he did not go to the police or a sheriff's station and instead he drove to the home of a female friend mary ellen stort her home in orlando Mary and Williams talked for a few minutes, then she called a lawyer, and then they eventually went to the police. Williams first arrived at a police station after 11 p.m., more than an hour and a half after Tommy had called for help, and about two and a half hours after the time that Williams alleged that Tommy had tried to shoot him, or maybe more like two hours. It's hard to tell. I guess he's alleging Tommy tried to shoot him around 8.30, so yeah, it is like two and a half hours. Anyway, I'm just saying, someone tries to kill you, this guy takes flowers to get to the police about it. Makes a lot of stops along the way, too. Just think about it. Edward Williams actually claims that a man tried to murder him, tried to shoot him, yet Edwards waited almost two and a half hours to go to the police. That doesn't make too much sense, does it? But the police never seem to question why Williams waited so long to report an attempted murder. Someone tries to kill me, boom, I can't contact the police but not Edward Williams. He goes to the KFC to call the police, but isn't successful. Doesn't try again. Just gives up. So he he hitches a ride with an acquaintance and then drives over to a friend's home passing police stations along the way. All this before he finally tells police about what happened two and a half hours earlier. You know, when someone apparently he's claiming tried to kill him. So Williams finally goes to the police. And when the police, he tells them his story. He tells them he has his gun that Tommy had given him. And when the police retrieved the gun from Williams' Camaro, where he had been keeping it after he took it out of his front pants pocket, the gun was cocked. Williams had said that the gun wasn't cocked. But that seems like it wasn't the truth, because when the police find it, it's cocked. The guy claims that he put the gun in his right pocket after Tommy gave it to him. And then Williams said he ran and hides behind a trailer and then jumps a fence and flees to the KFC. You know that story. And this entire time, Williams has a cocked gun in his pocket. Are we really supposed to think that Williams cares so little about his own dick that he would walk around with a cocked gun in his pocket? Williams' statement that the gun was not cocked is just another lie told by Williams. But more importantly, I think it implies that Williams knew that the gun wasn't loaded. Perhaps because he had used all the bullets earlier that night when he murdered Virginia and Perry Edwards, you know, alongside Charlie Mays and some other unknown killers. I read multiple times where Edward Williams refers to the gun misfiring when he claims that Tommy tried to shoot him, but it didn't misfire. It wasn't loaded. There was a difference there. And it looks like Williams knew that it wasn't loaded. There were, I think there were six available. Um, It could be loaded with six bullets. And I think they were all spent. So they were all just, you know, the halls were just in there. But the idea that Edward Williams carried the cocked gun around in his pocket for a while, and no sensible man would do that if it was a jammed gun. If he honestly thought this gun was jammed, which he said repeatedly to the police that he thought this gun was jammed, that if it becomes unjammed, that's lead in your pencil that you just don't want. I don't know if... Williams knew the gun wasn't loaded because he had used it that night, you know, to kill people, or because he had checked the gun himself later. But I do know that he kept referring to the gun jamming, which didn't happen. And he said that the gun wasn't cocked when it was. If this jackass keeps carrying guns around in his front pocket, he isn't going to be cocked either. Okay, now I know it's a small inconsistency in his story about whether the gun was cocked, but little lies add up. And he has the wrong clothes into the police. According to multiple witnesses at the KFC, and according to his landlady that saw him leaving and talked to him when he left his apartment building before he went to meet Tommy, they all saw him wearing an all-brown outfit. The man was dressed like a turd. People remembered it. It was brown on brown on brown. But the outfit he hands into the police is a black cardigan green pants and brand new black dress boots that still have the tag on the bottom. Yeah, brand new shoes, not a single scuff on them. Remember how he has to run and hide from Tommy? Climb up, six foot tall chain link fence. Yeah, not scuff on the boots. So he hands in the wrong clothes to the police. That's a lie. He lies about hiding behind the trailer when he says he's hiding from Tommy, when both Tommy's lawyer and Curtis Dunaway say that it's physically impossible for a person to fit between that trailer and the chain link fence. There was less than six inches space there and he wouldn't have been able to do that. So he lies about hiding behind the trailer and he lies about the gun being cocked. Williams is being deceitful and the police never call him out on it you know, do the very basics of their job. The very idea that Tommy was the murderer and that he let Williams flee the scene instead of killing him is ridiculous. And actually, Williams is not the only person that claims that Tommy let them flee the store that night. The second witness that came forward on Christmas Day was Felton Thomas. But I'm going to end right now. In the next episode, we will begin with the second witness that goes to the cops to implicate Tommy Ziegler in the murder of four people.